0: Fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guy's lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor and the rich get rich That's how it goes And everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat is leaking Hello and welcome to episode 2 of Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn, and I want to start with a proposition that I think is rather hard to deny. And the proposition is that the world is in a massive epistemological crisis. A crisis of knowledge, a crisis born of the inherent difficulty in discerning truth, facts, and objectivity from opinions, propaganda, and solipsism. And this is hardly a new problem. In fact, I'm inclined to the view that this problem goes to the very heart of what it means to be human, which is to say that it's probably always been a problem, and perhaps it always will be. But the crisis of knowledge seems to have gained a new kind of intensity in this information age. We are all basically drowning in a sea of information, a great deal of which is either overtly, implicitly, or accidentally deceptive. That is untrue, not valid, not deserved of the description knowledge. So that's my starting proposition. Political crisis, yes. Ecological crisis, well, definitely. Economic crisis? Maybe, depending on what your values are and what you read. But behind them all, epistemological crisis, a crisis of knowledge, and connected with that, a crisis of truth. Now, I made the claim in the introductory episode that my job in this series is rather akin to that of a humble cleaner, walking into a messy room and just doing some gentle tidying, mainly with the tools of philosophy. Well, actually, today is less about doing the cleaning and more about just examining the mess. And next episode, I promise, I will attempt to actually clean. Which is to say that this episode is more about looking at the problems rather than trying to solve the problems. And the nature of the room, if you recall, is that category I talked about. People who are spiritual but not religious. The room, which I claimed, is inherently messy. So... Let's jump in and examine the mess. One of the big reasons for the messiness of this spiritual but not religious room is the basic confusion that comes with rejecting two other possible approaches to spiritual life. Namely, either committing to a specific religious tradition and living within its dictates, or flatly denying the very possibility of living any kind of spiritual life in the first instance, of just being a hedonist or a materialist. Now, to be fair, I think that there are some very nuanced and wise minds occupying both of those categories. And also, I'm in no way asserting that people in those categories are free of basic epistemological confusion. But I do think that there is something inherently cleaner about it, particularly in terms of where one's knowledge is drawn from and how it is grounded, how it is used by the person, and what makes it true or justified or valid. So as a very, very loose generalisation, I want you to bring to mind all of those very dull and tedious debates that were taking place in the noughties between the new atheists and the theists. So representing the new atheists were people like the very erudite and now late journalist Christopher Hitchens, the evolutionary biologist, Richard Dawkins, and the analytic philosopher Daniel Dennett. And their basic claim, which they all shared, was that all religions are complete crap. Not only that, they are highly dangerous. They damage people, and they damage society, and they damage politics. So therefore, we need to get rid of them completely, and as soon as possible, and base all of our beliefs purely and squarely on science, particularly evolutionary theory. Their interlocutors were many and varied, but they were generally people who wished to defend theistic religion of some kind, either theologically or morally or both. So often they were priests or rabbis or imams or theologians of some kind. Now what was unmissable about both sides, and this is why the debates were so tedious, was the degree of absolute conviction that they had in their own knowledge, and in the sense that they generally had that the other side was utterly wrong. I mean completely wrong. So on the level of knowledge claims, the debate would often be reduced to a kind of absolutism about the validity and infallibility of science or God. Which means that neither side particularly suffered from epistemic confusion. Well, let's be clear. I think that both were suffering very deeply from a kind of epistemic confusion, but they themselves did not think this. They were rather certain about their knowledge. Which is to say that there's no mess in their rooms. So you have your scientific evidence, or you have your sacred text or theology, and that is that. It's a very simple translation into knowledge claim. And from there into ethical standpoint into practice. So very roughly and generally speaking, these will be representative of those other two categories that I spoke about just before and also in the last episode, the this-worldly materialists and the religiously committed. But my basic point is that those in the other category, in the spiritual but not religious category, do not have things so neat and tidy. Their knowledge of these kinds of questions is rather less certain, so there is inherently more confusion. In those kinds of debates, they're probably the kind of people that would see some kind of truth in both sides of the argument, alongside perhaps some kind of overreach or falsehood or confirmation bias, which I think is kind of a cool position. It's open and it's nuanced, but it also opens the door to uncertainty. And this leads me to the first tool that I want to put on the table in this episode. It is a tool which celebrates that uncertainty, which takes that as a badge of honour, a tool of epistemic humility, a willingness to accept that one doesn't particularly know one way or the other, especially in relation to some of the most profound and meaningful human questions. One humbly accepts the limitations of one's knowledge. This practice of epistemic humility is deeply connected to a form of scepticism that can be traced back to ancient Greece. Pyro of Alice and Sextus Empiricus, and before them, Socrates himself. In fact, one of the most well-known stories about Socrates is the one where he goes off to see the Oracle of Athens, the oracle called Delphi, which, as an aside, is rather interesting in itself. I mean, who goes to see an oracle to get good knowledge these days? But leaving that aside, he goes off to see her and he asks her, Who is the wisest person in all of Athens? To which she replies, Socrates. And he thought, That can't be right, because I don't know anything. At which point, the penny dropped. He realized he was being called the wisest because he knew he didn't know anything. And that put him ahead of everybody else who did not know that they did not know. And in fact, so many of the Socratic dialogues that we have preserved via Plato involve this not knowing as a kind of starting premise. So the dialogues will take the form of Socrates engaging other Athenians on the big questions of life what is love, what is justice, what is the beautiful, what is the good, and so forth. And in many cases, the person he's speaking to starts off rather sure that they know the answer to the question. Whereas Socrates never starts from this position of certainty or knowing. He only arrives at some kind of knowledge through the process of the dialogue, which is through reasoning. And this also undoes the starting convictions of the interlocutor, who tends to admit at some point through the dialogue that their starting assumptions were actually rather shoddy, that they were not, in the final analysis, knowledge at all, but rather mere opinion. And not only that, wrong opinion, badly founded opinion, opinion not based on anything logically coherent. So, the starting premise for Socrates is epistemic humility the admission that one does not actually know. And the sceptics take this a step further. So while Socrates starts from that position of not knowing, he ends up very, very, very certain on all of those big questions, the nature of love, of justice, of beauty, the good, etc. Whereas the sceptics start from that position and always remain in that position. They argue that one can never really know the true answer to those kinds of big abstract questions. And that moreover, it really troubles the mind to attempt to know. So their answer is actually to just suspend judgment. Suspend the process. And in doing so, in suspending the judgment, the mind finds what it's really looking for, which is ataraxia, or tranquility. So Socrates ends up with an absolutely pristinely clean bedroom after it was an unholy chaos. And his cleaning tool is epistemic humility coupled with rational dialogue or dialectic. And we'll leave aside for a moment the fact that a lot of the arguments we find in Plato are rather dubious. Whereas Pyro of Alice, the skeptic, just leaves the bedroom altogether and sleeps somewhere else. But I'll return to this point. That's not because he's lazy. His tool is to always remain epistemically humble and to define spiritual or ethical life as having a tranquil mind and to see that big rational debates to find good knowledge are actually not conducive to that because there is no such thing as good knowledge. So you clean the room by accepting that it cannot be cleaned. There is simply another kind of room to be discovered. A better room. The one which emerges only when you put down the quest to attain certain knowledge. So that's a tiptoe into the problem of knowledge in ancient Greece. But what might all of this mean now for those of us in the spiritual but not religious category? Well, I suppose One would not even be in that category without a good measure of epistemic humility in the first instance. You might say, it is basically the key to the door of that world. It is a key of openness to different forms of knowledge and acceptance of pluralism, which kind of implies some fence-sitting and confusion and being comfortable not having certainty. To be a bit of a commitment-phobe but for good reasons. Principally, understanding quite clearly the limitations of humans' ability to know things. So that's why this is our starting point. I am assuming that this is a quality that whoever resides in this category, the spiritual but not religious category, already possesses to some degree. Now, from there, you could go in that more Socratic direction, which implies having the clear sense that good certain knowledge is in fact attainable by us humans. And that could imply having confidence in scientific knowledge or maybe more philosophical knowledge. Or you could go in the more sceptical direction and simply put down the quest and settle onto your fence in the name of ataraxia or tranquility. But if we go for some kind of middle option, then the room suddenly starts getting very messy. So if you're a committed Platonist or a committed sceptic, you can probably stop here. But the rest of us must press on. And I think we have to ask, is it really enough to be open but uncommitted? to be a spiritual fence-sitter, to always retain a sense of epistemic humility, which implies, in the same breath, never really assenting or committing to any particular knowledge claims, to be in the sphere of pluralism, relativism, and scepticism in its true philosophical sense. Well, I suspect it is probably enough. If one simply wants to live a decent human life, to be a decent kind of person, to have good friends and good times, and not be the kind of person who trolls other people with their deep convictions, or tries to convert them in or out of their beliefs. So if that's what you're aiming for, the fence is pretty good. But I put it to you that it's probably not enough if one wants to taste a little more actual spiritual fruit, if one is genuinely trying to live a rich, meaningful, and purposive spiritual life, which actually does transform one's horizons and possibilities. So I'm putting something more robust on the table here. And it is the proposition that to make genuine spiritual transformations in your life, you have to do more than sit on the sceptical pluralist fence. I think the sceptical fence is a most excellent starting point. But from there, I claim, you do have to enter into things. Test them out. See how they fit. Learn what they do and don't do for you. And knowledge plays a very decisive role in this getting off the fence. It implies a particular way of treating ideas or systems of thought philosophies, traditions, techniques, and practices. A way which may start off as open and humble and uncertain, but moves in the direction of courageous and experimental. So really, the courage to try new things, the attitude of experimenting with them to see how they work or don't work. And this is very much in the sphere of pragmatism, which incidentally, It's a very modern tradition in epistemology, more or less summed up by the phrase, it's true because it works. And I don't think it's a very dangerous move from the skeptical fence to an experimental kind of pragmatism. It simply means that you move from abstaining from everything at the buffet to grabbing a plate and trying a few things. You have to eat a bit, taste, see if it's good or not. If it's not, you can reject it. If it is good, you can get more. And it is precisely here where epistemology becomes a really, really big and important problem for spiritual but not religious people. Because what exactly is your taste when you're at the buffet table? And should you really trust it? Which is to say, how are you actually discerning what works and what doesn't? What's a good path and a bad path? A good practice or a bad practice? A rich tradition or a poor tradition? An authentic teacher or a charlatan? How do you know to trust your own judgment on these matters? And if you can't trust that then what can you trust, if anything at all? And actually the palette at the buffet is a very good metaphor because it causes us to reflect on what kind of knowledge might inform our food choices and diet. The fact remains that most of us do not just eat whatever we want on the basis of taste. We moderate our choices. Usually on the basis of knowledge, particular forms of knowledge connected to health, so often grounded in scientific or medical or physiological forms of knowledge. So at the buffet table, there is already a strong dichotomy between your desires and your knowledge, which comes in part from external places, in which you place your trust in. And for some people, this can be very paralyzing. It breeds tremendous uncertainty, and from there, anxiety. And I think this metaphor transfers to spiritual but not religious life. I mean, it's certainly true that some people might just follow their desires 100%. And there are, in fact, more than a few spiritual but not religious approaches which advocate for that. But most don't. Most present the same kind of dichotomy between what you really desire and what is really good for you. And the fact is that these may not be the same. You may have to give up what you want to eat which for me is cheese and chocolate mousse, and adopt something less appealing but better for you, miso soup and steamed greens. So let me just frame the problem more cleanly outside of the range of buffet metaphors. The problem is that most approaches to spiritual life require us to accept forms of knowledge that lay outside and beyond the sphere of our own desires and life world. And we simply do not know for sure how to ascertain the validity or truth or efficacy of those forms of knowledge. That is, how can we really trust them? So the problem is always connected with spiritual ideas or practices that extend beyond what we legitimately already know with some confidence. And that's why the sceptical fence is so appealing. One arrives at it like a true sceptic, simply because of this very genuine uncertainty. So, two issues from here. One, do we need to go beyond that experimental and pragmatic first step after hopping off the fence? Two, if the answer to the first question is yes, then what underpins our knowledge and understanding when we do so? And how and where might we go wrong when we do that? So let me start with the first issue. Do we need to go beyond that kind of experimental pragmatism that I was speaking about a little earlier? Well, I think it depends. It depends very precisely on what you want out of your life. If you want genuine and tangible spiritual transformations, then the answer is a definitive yes. If not, then staying near the fence is probably a very good idea. It will keep you sane and sensible and open-minded. But if you do want genuine transformations, then I'm afraid you must acknowledge how much labour, effort and diligence is required to accomplish that. How much time. And this is to say that true spiritual transformations are very, very hard won. They do not come cheap or easily. In fact, a writer named Malcolm Gladwell made the claim that 10,000 hours of labour are required to gain mastery in something, whatever it might be be it pure mathematics or golf or Zazen. That's a lot of time. Now, I'm not sure if such a claim is well founded and gets our tick of valid knowledge. I suspect actually that it probably isn't and probably doesn't. But it is a pretty good loose template for blowing out of the water one of the great fallacies of contemporary spiritual life. Namely, that such a thing does not require very much effort. There are a great many platitudes about this which are very, very tempting to adopt. And I'm just going to flatly deny that here. I think they are simply and catastrophically wrong. And the implication is that if you wish to perfect any kind of spiritual technique or discipline, from the Buddhist mindfulness mentioned in the last episode, to the cultivation of the Stoic virtues, to the developing of Hindu bhakti or the practice of Feldenkrais or whatever it might be, then there is simply no choice but to invest an incredible amount of labour and energy in the effort. Otherwise, the only certainty is that one will never accomplish genuine transformation. So that in itself is daunting, and that is precisely why those platitudes are so tempting. But even more daunting is the epistemic problem. That to work with that kind of duration and intensity and investment of time entails many, many, many steps away from that sceptical fence. It entails treading some kind of path consistently and wholeheartedly, and that definitely entails some kind of firm choice that you make, and probably some commitments, even if they remain unstated. And there are many different paths from that fence, leading in many quite distinct directions, some of which are plainly contradictory. So how do you know which one to take, and what is the basis for that knowing? That, my friends, is the heart of the problem. It is the nature of the messy room. And I suspect that many spiritual but not religious people have at one time or another become rather deeply paralysed by it. And I'm afraid to say the problem goes even deeper. Once you've taken those steps and spent a decent amount of your time and energy and effort, one year or two years or five or more, How do you know the path that you have invested in is right, or true, or working for you? And what is the basis of that knowing? And more acutely, what might potentially be lost by practicing A and therefore not B? How are you to judge all of that? To frame that more negatively, how liable are we to confirmation bias? And how capable are we of producing very considered, careful, Accurate reflections and judgments, which reflect truly our progress or lack thereof, I think, very and not very. That is, very liable to confirmation bias, and not very capable of producing accurate judgments. In the philosophical tradition of epistemology, east and west, great philosophers have enormous difficulty even establishing the validity of simple empirical knowledge. For instance, the relationship between seeing a blue chair and knowing that it must be a blue chair. And that's something all of us non-philosophers take entirely for granted. So it's important to realise it's always very hard to establish anything as valid or true. How much more so then, in the complex and elusive nature of pursuing something as abstract and intangible as spiritual transformations. Yet somehow we know this is possible. So that's the mess. Humans tend to overestimate their abilities in this area, which is to say we are extraordinarily good at self-deception, especially when we're invested into something and we're attached to it. So at this point, we might be up against more than just confusion or uncertainty. We are perhaps verging on the notion of delusion. And there are, God forbid, very many quite deluded spiritual but not religious people. So to step away from the fence is to step into very, very dangerous terrain. So is it possible to get out of this paralysis? And if so, how? Are there tools of philosophy and forms of knowledge that can be relied upon? Well, I did issue a caveat at the start of this episode that I will be only examining the mess, exploring its contours, exposing it, and that next episode I will actually start the process of cleaning. So this is a to-be-continued. But I want to end by just clarifying what we have covered so far. So the premise of the series is that great subjective or spiritual transformations are indeed always possible for human beings. And I think we all on some level know that, but that to really accomplish that, philosophical tools and techniques are necessary. And today I have examined some of the epistemological issues that go hand in hand with being in that spiritual but not religious category. And not all of these issues are problems, The very fact of being in this category implies a good measure of epistemic humility, the willingness to admit that you do not know, which is connected with a beautiful kind of flexibility and openness in our very pluralistic age. Now, from such a starting point, one could proceed like Socrates all the way into absolute certainty via rational dialectic. And if you have managed to achieve this, please email me before next week and I hereby formally invite you to do the next podcast. The other option is that sceptical impulse to always remain at that starting point and never assent to any judgments on the basis that certain knowledge is simply not possible in the first instance. And if you've managed that, then you already know that everything I've said cannot be assented to, and I firmly congratulate you on your attainment of ataraxia. But for the rest of us, and frankly, I think this will be basically everyone, then somehow or other we must proceed, slowly but surely, into the swamp. So, next episode, I will start knee-deep in this swamp, and if all goes well, present some options to get us out. So thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more episodes at ratehouse.com.au.